What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Mm. Amen. We here. We're back. We're back. It's a regular old Thursday. Regular old Thursday. No bonus episode this week. No. Just hitting Thursdays hard. Yeah, I feel like I'm trying to get in a really good groove about uploading our regular Thursdays and Patreon and trying to like make the Patreon episodes really, really good. Yeah. And so I have not been able to produce two episodes a week like I was in the fall and winter. Also, life is just crazy. It's just been way crazy right now. It's true. It has been a very crazy week. We got a snail. We did. um, That we put in the fish tank. And three fish. And a couple little guppies that we put in there as well. Mm -hmm. And it's just a little thriving community. The snail does want to get in a fight with everyone, I think, <laughs> but it's been very entertaining to sit and watch. I now have videos on my phone of our snail it's just doing a snail thing. Snail thing. Videos of the snail yeah. doing snail things. So are those videos like 30 minutes long or? No, they're like a minute each. Oh, okay. Because you can like see him very slowly crossing. <laughs> doing just his makes, best. He's just doing his best. He just scoots across. It just makes me really happy. Well, good. All right, we better jump right in. What are we drinking tonight? Uh, on, and we're both drinking the same thing because... We're drinking different variations of the same thing. Are we? Yes. So I don't know what I'm drinking. So you'll have to tell everybody <laughs> what the two of us are each drinking. So I'm drinking a spiced apple tea. It's mm-hmm. a Tiavana tea. I should have looked at what the spices were, but it's really good. And I made you throat coat. Oh, yeah. With local honey from my dad's friend's bees Ooh. that they made all by themselves. All by themselves. They did such a good job. They sure did. It's really good honey. But yeah, the throat coat is because you have been losing your voice. <laughs> I've been losing my voice, but I'm almost on the at the tail end of losing my voice. Mm-hmm. And you're still suffering through it. So I'm like, mm, I'll make in the throat coat. I'm suffering a little bit. It's true. And I got to do a lot of singing this weekend. So yeah, you do. It is time for the throat coat to come out. Mm. Well, my love, do you got a feel-good fact for us? Yes, I do. Okay, so in Germany, they have frog fences along stretches of roads to 
keep frogs from trying to cross and getting run over. At the end of the day, someone will go to the fences and help any frogs out who need to get across the road so nobody gets hurt. Oh, my gosh. That made me really That's happy. in Germany? Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm not sure for how, like, how many areas in Germany mm-hmm. have that, if it's just one specific road or what, but I love that that's a thing. That's a fun thing. I it's like kind of like the bridges that people made to help crabs that are, like, migrating uh-huh. to cross so that they don't have to cross on the highway. They get, like, right. filtered into that little bridge. Right. And there's just, like... Hundreds of thousands of crabs just like <laughs> crossing their, their way. way. Yeah. yeah. Just doing their thing. It's amazing. I know. I love it. All right, my dear. We got a long one you've been telling me today. I think it's going to be long, especially because I think you'll have input. Oh, okay. Well, so. then let's let's jump right in so that I can have all of the commentary that I love to give all the time. Totally. Okay. So I mentioned it kind of briefly in our last episode that I'm kind of surprised that we're 60 episodes in and we haven't covered a cult yet. Mm -hmm. And so I decided that's probably the route we should go. And when I was trying to figure out which cult am I going to cover, we've got the People's Temple, we've got the Manson family, we've got Heaven's Gate. There's Mm -hmm. so many different, really horrifyingly scary cults. And I feel like we can talk about some of like the big heavy hitters at some point. But for today, I wanted to talk about a lesser known cult or at least a cult that's lesser known in the United States. Mm, Okay. So from 2012 to 2016, a cult operating in a satellite town in South Africa went on a killing spree, claiming that they were doing the Lord's work of eliminating Satanism from the land. But at the heart of it was just a lust for greed and power. A lust so powerful and twisted that it would leave a trail of darkness and death in its wake. This is the story of Electus Perdeus. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. All right. So since this is our first episode covering a cult, I thought it would be smart to start off with a little kind of definition, distinction kind of moment. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like the word cult does get thrown around a lot without any actual like, I don't know, like care or regard for how complex of a term it really is. And considering the fact that many experts and researchers don't even fully agree on what constitutes a cult. Yeah. So I figured let's try and like get on the same wavelength with our listeners. Yeah, that's a good idea. So according to the APA Dictionary of Psychology, a basic definition of a cult is a religious or quasi-religious group characterized by unusual or atypical beliefs, seclusion from the outside world, and an authoritarian structure. Hmm. Cults tend to be highly cohesive, well-organized, secretive, and hostile to non-members. They also tend to have a system of beliefs and rituals specific to their group. Another explanation comes from Dr. Stephen Hassan. He says that cults use deception and undue influence to make people dependent and obedient. Hmm. He also clarifies that a group should not be considered a cult merely because of its unorthodox beliefs. Cults are typically authoritarian, headed by a person or small group of people with near-complete control of all followers. Mm. Cult influence is designed to disrupt a person's authentic identity and replace it with a new identity. An article that he wrote for Psychology Today gives a super clear explanation of a very complex world of cults, and so I'll be linking that in the show notes if anyone wants to read more, but I do feel like that kind of gives us a good starting point. Yeah, that's really good. I think... One thing, so I I love learning about cults. Yeah. And, uh, oh yeah. I've got I'm, I've got ammo ready for this episode, mm-hmm. not because I know anything about what you're going to talk about, outside of like a couple of things you've told me in passing. Right. But because I just I've got certain things that I think about constantly with cults. So mm-hmm. <laughs> this is really I'm I'm really interested to hear 
more about how this is going to play out. Yeah, for sure. So let's start by talking about Krugersdorp. Krugersdorp is a satellite town on the western side of Johannesburg, South Africa, and it's sometimes referred to as West Rand. <laughs> Krugersdorp is a mining city and is a mix of rural and urban living for those that call the place home. Given its location, many residents of Krugersdorp commute to work in Johannesburg, and from what I could find, according to people who live there, it's kind of a mixed bag. Some people would describe it as very friendly and very diverse and like lively, while others make note about being vigilant and protecting yourself because it's not the safest place to live. There are hmm. a few like very beautiful tourist attractions and resources for learning about this city in South Africa, but crime has been on the rise. Interesting. For the last several years. Okay. Like it's been increasingly going up each year. Hmm. One very notable feature of Krugersdorp in the early 2010s was the deep-seated fear of the occult, particularly in regards to how the occult affects children. Hmm. Groups focused on educating people about occultist practices would go to schools and give lectures, kind of like sex and drug lectures that we would get back in high school. Oh, okay. It yeah. was like as kind of commonplace as that to have that kind of a person come in and talk to the kids yeah. about occultism and satanism yeah. and stuff like moms against drunk driving and yes. the dare program stuff like mm -hmm. that yes yeah. one such group that did this was known as the overcomers through christ they would visit schools and provide what they called enrichment weeks where they would join forces with a local police department social crime prevention unit in hopes of keeping children from getting themselves in situations where they would fall victim to ritualistic murders oh wow Yes. So Rhea Grunwald from Florida, Johannesburg, established Overcomers Through Christ in 2006 after attending a Christian training course on the occult in East Rand and learning about the darker side of Satanist and occultic practices in the region. And I need to be super duper clear about this. Some ritual murders had taken place, but South Africa was not immune to the satanic panic that started back in the 1980s in the United States before it spread all over the world. Hmm, this has okay. actually been, yeah, it's actually been a pretty complex issue, specifically in South Africa since the early 90s. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but the satanic panic in the U.S. was like, oh no, Dungeons and Dragons is brainwashing our kids to mm -hmm. worship Satan. Yeah. And in South Africa, it was more like, we've had some crimes with some level of connection to occultic practices, and so it must be a rampant problem about Satanism. Mm, okay, so... Not that these things aren't big deals, but an overblown scope is, sound, is what it sounds like. Right. But they just assumed it's happening everywhere when it only happened a few mm -hmm. times kind of a thing. And it wasn't even, I'm going to get into this in a second, but it was not affiliated with the Church of Satan in South Africa. Oh, okay. So Rhea left her job as a financial advisor and trained as a trauma counselor in hopes of helping survivors of satanic ritual abuse and those fleeing from satanic cults that they'd fallen in with. Just as a distinction here, the survivors that she helped were generally victimized by fringe groups loosely affiliated with Satanism. Hmm. Much like Christians would condemn beliefs and practices like those of the Branch Davidians or the Westboro Baptist Church, the Church of Satan would condemn beliefs and practices of anyone committing crimes against other people done in the name of Satanism. Hmm. Okay. So I feel like that's yeah. an important thing to point out, to like have a clear understanding of. Yeah, so— this is actually really interesting, I feel like. Uh, the Church of Satan, um, and there's actually, there's two now. There's the Church of Satan, and then there's the Satanic Temple, I think. Um, and both are different and unique, but um, similar in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. 
before the Satanic Temple existed, when we were in high school, it was just the Church of Satan. And I actually had a girl in my class <laughs> uh, who I remember like like in, in like sophomore year of high school. I guess we went to different schools. I don't know what year you did it. Um, but my sophomore year, we had to do, I think they were persuasive speeches or mm-hmm. informational. Either one. I don't remember which one it was. But the point was that sh- this girl got up and uh, she talked about the church of Satan, what mm-hmm. Satanism is and what they teach. And it was uh, actually surprisingly tame. Like oh yeah, a lot of things that are really just like tongue in cheek to Christianity is right. really what it comes down to. It's not actually anything that has to do with worshiping the devil. It, it was a whole lot more about um, just like, like kind of prodding at Christians in general. Well, and to thine own self be true kind yes, of things. Yeah. Yes, which is... Uh, What's that guy's name? LeVay. Yeah, I think so. Anton LeVay, who mm-hmm. said that. Yeah. Something Which is, like that. Or yeah. do what thou wilt or something like something that. Something yeah. to that effect. And that's that's the whole point is that you just do what you want to do mm-hmm. and you don't hurt other people. And totally. it was interesting being 16 years old and hearing about this belief system that everybody had, you know, preconceived notions about mm-hmm. in their mind and mm-hmm. then being told this is what it is and being like, oh, okay. Like. I don't believe that that's, but at the same time, it was like sobering to be like, oh, okay, this isn't like a big, crazy, weird thing. I didn't know that. I did not know this. Yeah. Yeah. The satanic panic really was a panic. About the unknown. Yeah. About the unknown really more than anything else. And that's, that's the challenge. Yeah. And I'm kind of trying to set the stage that in South Africa, like it wasn't, South Africa was not the only place that this was how the satanic panic was playing out. But it's it's interesting because it's like this um, zoomed in place where you kind of see the fruit of trying to combat something that you don't have a full understanding of. Mm, yeah. And it's I mean, I feel like every person on the planet would agree that you can't really rightly critique something if you don't even understand its basic core tenets. Right. And to critique something or broadly, to combat against it. Yeah. To com- to 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 critique a broad <clears throat> set of beliefs based on what the fringe groups are doing mm-hmm. is also wildly unfair. Oh yeah. So yeah, there's, there's just some some general best practices I think when it comes to learning what people believe, actually believe, and not just what the fringe groups do. Right. Right. Okay. So in October of 2006, Rhea received a call from a young student named Monique who was afraid for her life. She didn't want to go home because she said there were people waiting for her who wanted to murder her on Halloween night as part of a satanic ritual sacrifice. Rhea was able to pick up Monique and contact her family, where she used her skills as a trauma counselor, as well as whatever resources were afforded to her, to help keep Monique safe and to help her escape the cult she'd fallen into. It was this experience specifically that led her to start Overcomers Through Christ as a nonprofit. Hmm. It quickly gained steam, and Rhea and her very small team would visit schools and churches with the mission of building an army of former Satanists turned Christians. I feel like army is like probably too intense of a word, <laughs> but like you're welcome here if you're trying to escape something. Yeah. Basically. That makes sense. Yeah. So I feel like her heart was in the position of wanting to help people. Mm-hmm. In 2007, Rhea met a woman by the name of Marinda Stain, a 40-year-old teacher at one of the schools that she was visiting with her group. Marinda told Rhea that she had been so moved by her presentation and that she wanted to convert from Satanism to Christianity, and within a few short months, Rhea received an urgent call about another young woman who needed help escaping the occult. 
This was 26-year-old Cecilia Stain. When they met up, Cecilia told her that she'd been delivered from evil spirits at Rima Bible College in Randburg, and Rhea took pity on the young pregnant woman who seemed to have struggled to get where she was at that time. But there was a bigger problem, according Mm. to Cecilia. Okay. Cecilia claimed to have been a 42nd generation witch and that she'd been chosen as a bride of Satan. She claimed that she couldn't escape this calling without help, or really, she kind of couldn't escape it at all, and that there was a group of evil witches who were dead set on hunting her down and forcing her to go through with it. And that group of witches was headed up by her father. Hmm. Rhea believed her and wanted to help, but the problem was that Cecilia was absolutely full of it, and this was only the first of the lies that she would tell to Rhea. Oh, I was about to say, for, for you to be a 42nd generation witch would mean you'd have to be like like, like medicine woman, mm-hmm. medicine man, like lots of very, uh, maybe more, oh, what's the word? Like Just, titles, basically? Yeah, Rankings? Yeah, almost? lots of that over mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. But if it's all made up, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> so basically what she did was attempt to confirm to Rhea that children were in fact being sacrificed day and night, and that babies are being baptized in blood and all sorts of crazy things that simply are not part of Satanist practice. Mm-hmm. But Rhea didn't know that. Mm. She used the fear Rhea felt to manipulate her into playing a weird and soon-to-be-deadly game with her. To establish her goal, she made up all kinds of stories about her childhood, claiming that her father wanted to kill her for converting, and that her father was an evil high priest, and her mom came from a long bloodline of witches— and that she wow. also had magical powers. And what year is this? This was in 2007. Oh, my. Okay. Yeah. Jeez. So this wasn't 50 years ago. Right. Yeah. So as a side note, Cecilia's parents were about as chill as can be. Her mom, Mara, was a stay-at-home mom, and her father, Piet, worked a government job. Her hmm. family were members of a local Dutch Reformed church, and they were super laid back, opting for fast food and riding motorbikes from time to time. Like, they were totally normal, casual people, but Rhea didn't know that. Oh, no. Okay. Wow. So this lie is extreme. It's right. not like they were like kind of in it and she just blew it out of proportion. It's she straight up made something up. That's oh, yeah. Completely. Dramatic, super dramatic. Okay. Right. Well, and I don't think that I actually mentioned this, but later on, anytime Cecilia's parents actually came around and were trying to contact her, Rhea would like get them out of there Mm. because she truly believed that they were evil. And Cecilia had like twisted her brain into thinking they're going to look like normal people. Yeah. She used her own fear against her. Yes. That's crazy. Yes. So Cecilia Stain's family, they were not super close by any stretch, but they did care about each other. Like they were very normal. Hmm. Cecilia would later be described as a gifted child, but she couldn't keep herself out of trouble. She engaged in some petty vandalism, but it was when she was expelled for practicing occultism that things took a turn. Hmm. While Cecilia dressed like a goth, there was no actual indication that she was up to anything actually sinister (laughs) in her younger years. Cecilia was briefly married but divorced and then got remarried to a man named Dries, who was the father of her unborn child and their then four-year-old son, and who had happened to have been a police officer. Hmm. Okay. Interestingly, though, it was almost like Cecilia and Dries lived two separate lives. Interesting. Because he would like work nights and oh, sure. Like, they were sure. kind of on opposite schedules. They yeah, didn't I really actually know each other all that well. It seems like hmm. I'm, I'm kind of hinting at something. We'll hmm. see if you pick up on it. So all in all, really, there was nothing on the surface very remarkable about Cecilia. 
But she did weave a horrifying tale of abuse at the hands of everyone around her. And that abuse was solely derived from devotion to Satan. Hmm. She claimed that these people were putting her and anyone who helped her under death curses and that they'd use practices such as astral projection to listen in on their private conversations. Wow. She also claimed that during her time as a Satanist, she could morph into a vampire or a werewolf, that she could astral project, read people's minds, attack them without even touching them, teleport, commune with demons, which she illustrated that with photos of blurry figures that appeared to be doing some kind of magic, and those photos would later be determined to have been stills from movies. So so she's, the thing is, she's describing things that are like practices in um, in witchcraft, but not in Satanism. Mm-hmm. So she's she herself is tying all of these occultic things mm-hmm. into Satanism as if they're one. So she obviously doesn't know what she's talking about either, which would have been obvious to anybody who actually knew what Satanism is. Mm-hmm. But none of these people did either. Well, and I feel like that paints the perfect picture of the culture. Because mm-hmm. it's wow. like people actually don't know that there are distinctions between two very different worldviews, yeah. which there can be overlaps, of sure, course, sure. just like almost any other worldview, there can be overlaps. Yeah. But overall, this there's just a lot of ignorance in yeah. the culture. And uh, that's not really anybody's fault. It's it's kind of hard to know where to start when you're digging into right. what does this specific worldview adhere to? What do they believe? What are their practices and rituals and all that kind of stuff? Right. But I feel like that was... That was so the culture. Yeah. It's a lot like. In, and it still is pretty yeah. much everywhere. It's Yeah. It's a lot like in in the beginning of uh, this this side of, of the millenniums uh, mm-hmm. in the common era. You have all of the people who uh, followed Jesus and they would practice taking communion. Sure. And there was a panic about them because in their taking communion, they would talk about. Uh, eating the body and drinking the blood. And so the claim against them was that they were cannibals. Right. And that led to like a lot of martyrdom and like a lot of people dying because they ate a wafer. Right. Because they, and because the culture around them was terrified of what that meant. Mm -hmm. In the same way, these people who are well-meaning, but like ignorant Mm -hmm. are also allowing themselves to be caught up in the same exact kind of a lie. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's really wow. complicated. And that's why I wanted to like open up with being like, yo, this is super complex. And I hmm. feel like we need to like leave room for that. Yeah. You know. So even though Cecilia was totally full of it, she put on a convincing enough act that Rhea bought it and would pour herself out for the sake of helping Cecilia fully break free from the powers of darkness. So naturally, Rhea gave up much of her time and resources in this effort. Oh man. Fully believing all of the wild and terrifying tales she was being told. She bought her food, clothing, supported her financially, prayed with her, and remained patient as Cecilia took full advantage of her, claiming that she was unable to work or even leave the area of her apartment due to health problems and death spells cast on her. Cecilia faked many medical ailments in an attempt to ensure that she was always receiving some kind of care or attention from Rhea and went so far as to keep law enforcement out of the situation, regularly reinforcing that her father— an evil high priest, had the police in his back pocket, creating another line of distrust that Rhea had in the world around her. Yeah, Rhea was so devoted to helping Cecilia that she would even set up other members of the Overcomers to go over and help Cecilia out on the days that Rhea couldn't make it. And after just six short years, 
Cecilia was able to trick members of Rhea's group into joining her cult, a cult that she would call Electus Perdeus. Wow. A Latin phrase meaning chosen by God. Okay, well, first of all, the fact that she kept up this ruse for six years is crazy. Longer than that. Oh, By the my. time this is said and done, longer than that. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so now we're in like 2013. Yeah. This is very recent. So, not quite. Oh, okay, okay. Not we're not quite. quite there yet. Okay. Yeah, no, not quite. So, how did she manage to pull off forming a cult and, and you know, recruiting members? Mm-hmm. It was kind of a common practice for members of the Overcomers to go and visit Cecilia on what she called high nights, or nights on the satanic calendar when they would practice certain rituals and such. Mm -hmm. She would claim that she was more susceptible to their spells on those nights because they were more powerful. So the members of the Overcomers would come and pray and listen to worship music and try to drive out any evil presence and like all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. They had to do it at Cecilia's home when her husband was out, which... He was never home for any of this stuff, Mm -hmm. though it seems like her children were. Hmm. From what I read, her children may have allegedly witnessed a lot of it, and they may have also allegedly witnessed all other kinds of really horrifyingly bad things. Oh, no. Drug, massive drug use, like all that kind of stuff. Oh, gosh. I just feel so bad for her little kids. Yeah. And she claimed that they could only protect her in her own home because if she went more than 30 kilometers away from her home, that the death curse that was put on her would take effect. Jeez. But these high night attacks were frequent and dramatic. Cecilia would ham it up. She'd roll her eyes in the back of her head and she would fall to the ground and convulse and scream. She claimed to have a dissociative identity disorder and thousands of alternate personalities living inside of her. Oh. She would like... Anytime she had a specific thing, the only bit of credit that I can give Cecilia is that she's very quick thinking. She knew which personality to bring out for what thing. Hmm. And it like, like with a snap of a finger. Yeah. Which is just crazy to me. So she claimed that the personality of Anya, who was a small four-year-old child, represented everything good and pure about her. And so Anya was the one receiving the brunt of the attacks against Cecilia. That's what (sighs) she would claim. Wow. I feel like it goes without saying at this point, but she was just totally full of it. Yeah. But the group truly believed that she was under spiritual attack, and they were, like, just so committed to helping her. Cecilia had told them that during these attacks, she would be out of body being tortured elsewhere. She would sometimes say that it was one of her alternate personalities being tortured, such as Anya, like I Mm -hmm. said. The attacks would go on sometimes for several hours and would almost always end with Cecilia bloody and then needing to be calmed down after being violently thrown around her home in front of the overcomers, who would be like shouting prayers and reciting scripture over her. It would later be learned that the blood that would pour out of her mouth during these episodes was her own blood, but it was her own blood that she'd drawn, put into the fingers of latex gloves, and tied off. She would put the little plastic bit full of her blood into her mouth before the spectacle began and would bite down on it to make it look like she was being made to like spit out blood. Okay, so she, what's been kind of in the back of my mind this whole time is um, just the thought of like, what if she's, you know, uh, suffering from a mental illness that would cause her to to really truly believe these things? Nope. You saying (laughs) that really gives, it's a smoking gun that gives the whole thing away, that this is all premeditated, absolutely a, a game it's calculated. it's calculated. It's mm-hmm. calculated. 
This is wow. And she's doing it. I think it's important to point out the people who are there uh, trying to help her, the Christians that are really doing their best, they're victims too. Oh, yeah. They're being taken for a ride. Mm -hmm. And she's like absolutely able to pull out what she needs to. And it sounds like she has a church background too, if her parents are members of a Dutch Reformed church. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of like, she she knows she's highly knowledgeable mm-hmm. and highly manipulative, mm-hmm. which is oh, well. And I huge, think one of the saddest oh. things is that the Christians really, really, really think they're doing their like duty mm-hmm. by helping her, which is really sad to me. Like they feel like we must help her. Right. It's not just like hmm, maybe maybe I could help. It's like a deep yeah. thing in their hearts that's like this is our job now. Mm. Which is really sad. She took advantage of that mindset. Right, right. So it was during these nights, as well as the constant involvement of the overcomers in Cecilia's day-to-day life, that led to some of the more vulnerable members of the group to eventually be convinced that Cecilia was, in fact, uniquely chosen by God for a greater purpose. Hmm. A woman who was hired to do the graphics for the overcomers, a woman named Candice Rijevec, was one of the most devoted members of the cult at the beginning. After Mm. getting over her initial skepticism about Cecilia and her outlandish story, Candace felt a really deep connection to her. She felt emotionally and physically drawn to her, and the two would quickly form a romantic relationship and deep friendship. Oh, wow. It wouldn't be long before Candace was hanging on Cecilia's every word, and she would become willing to do just about anything for her. She gave Cecilia the equivalent of thousands of U.S. dollars a month, believing she was paying for her medical expenses. Like, she carried an oxygen tank, like, all sorts of things. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, that's messed up. So, wow. Yeah. I'll talk more about the cult and some of its key members here in a minute, but I do want to highlight some of the more prevalent lies and some of the ways that Cecilia was able to trick these people into giving her more and more money. Hmm. And I really, truly feel like this was the heart of the whole charade. Cecilia found a way to make a ton of money and to feed her ego at any cost to those around her. So, for example, two of the members of the group who were a young married couple were giving her 100,000 rand a month, which is the equivalent of like 5,600 U.S. dollars. So she was making a full-time salary from just that couple, and there were more people giving her money. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, that's a ton of money. So that's what this is all about. It's money. It's It's all about money and power. Wow. So Cecilia claimed that deep in the jungles of America was an orphanage full of children who had escaped the occult and were being hidden and rehabilitated, but they desperately needed funding. Oh. So there's a lot of things wrong with that statement. I don't know if she was talking about jungles of South America. She didn't, from what I could find, she did not make a distinction. But there are not jungles in North America as far as I know. I would agree with that. Forests. Lots of forests. Plenty of those. Wood, woodlands. M- mountain ranges. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not, not many jungles. Yeah, none that I know of. So she had members each pay her, and then she said she would take the money to the jungle orphanage via astral projection. Oh, boy. Okay. Like, Don't worry, I can handle this, guys. So obviously, that's not even kind of true, but the members of the cult wanted to help, so multiple people gave money specifically to that cause. But really, they were only serving to fatten Cecilia's pockets. So wow. key members of the group. Those included Candace, who I'd mentioned, as well as Marinda Stain, who was a divorced teacher with two preteen children. 
They have no relation to each other, but Miranda did change her last name to Stain because she claimed that they were sisters once she joined the cult. Hmm. She was brought into the Overcomers group after Rhea had done a presentation at her school, and after some time in 2008, she was introduced to Cecilia. Miranda's two children, her 12-year-old son LaRue and 10-year-old daughter Marcel, also became members of the cult, which is extra, extra tragic to me. Yes. Wow. When children get involved in something like this, mm-hmm. I just don't know if there are many things sadder than that to right. me. So then there was Zach and Michaela Valentine, a young married couple. So Zach was a successful financial advisor who had lived a pretty normal life. He was raised in a loving home, attended church with his family, and had no marks against him legally. He was responsible, successful, and grounded until he met Cecilia. Hmm. His wife, Michaela, had a more troubled childhood and turned to drugs at a young age. But when she was introduced to the church, she really began to thrive. She overcame her struggles with drugs and addiction and was pursuing a degree in ministry at Rima Bible College. Hmm. And then there's John Bernard. There's not a ton of information about John, but from what I could find, he's kind of like the evil henchman of the crew. Oh, okay. Like some sources said that he had a problem with drug addiction and had just kind of like fallen in with the overcomers and then eventually electus perdeus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but he was kind of like the guy who they'd be like, hey, go do this. And he'd be like, okay, sure. Mm, okay. Like, what do you give me if I go do it? You know, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So the fact that these people were able to be tricked into becoming loyal followers of Cecilia Stain is pretty mind blowing and really speaks to the way that some people choose to leverage their ability to lead people. It seems like the quintessential building of a cult. Jeez. The cult's beliefs are actually pretty unique. I mean, not like, I don't know, maybe in the grand scope of cults, they're not. (laughs) But I feel like there's so many specific oddities about their beliefs. Mm, Okay. So Candace, one of the former cult members, wrote a book about this story. And on her website, she gave a really thorough rundown of the beliefs of the cult. So let's lay those out. Okay. Yeah. I was about to ask what they could possibly be to make them unique. So this is good. (laughs) Yeah. So there's going to be like a little bit of um, kind of callbacks to things I've already mentioned. And I'll go like a little deeper into them. So to start, Cecilia used those episodes on the high nights as an attempt to demonstrate and verify some level of divinity. Those episodes paved the way for her to continue to build her story to gain the trust and loyalty of the people she would target as members. She claimed to have been God's chosen messenger. Hmm. While she maintained that she had had many conversations with God, that she'd spoken with him directly and had been in his presence, she also claimed that she was handpicked to bring about major world events in the years to come. She demonstrated this by accurately quoting and citing scripture— by appearing to know everything about every person she ever came across, and ultimately, and perhaps most compelling to her followers, was that she claimed to have been doing the express will of God. Hmm. She was extremely selective with who she recruited, picking the most vulnerable members of the group who would not be able to escape once they were roped in. Hmm. One of the more confusing elements was that she didn't do the thing that many cult leaders do. She didn't claim to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. That seems to be like kind of a core tenet. Instead, she claimed that she was the Antichrist, that she would be the one leading those left behind after Jesus comes back to bring his church into eternity, which like every fiber of my being wants (laughs) to go on a rant about this. (laughs) Yeah. Because I feel very strongly about this whole conversation. Yes. But I'm just going to say historically, there was very little differentiation between different eschatological views 
or views of the end times in the Christian faith. And they were not these wacky sci-fi moments that have become popular in the last 200 or so years. Yeah. And I feel like the variations that have popped up in the last 200 or so years have been the catalyst for a lot of spiritual abuse. Hmm. Yeah. And that is 100% true in this case. Absolutely. Yeah. This is the epitome of <laughs> uh, taking something that most people misunderstand. Kind of like Satanism. Man- manipulating it, mm-hmm. making it seem like something that it isn't, and twisting it to then manipulate other people. Mm-hmm. So she, I, I wonder how much of all that she really knew accurately mm-hmm. versus what she just kind of like was able to pick and choose and pull out and just mm-hmm. make, you know, random claims about. Sure. Um, but it, it seems to me like she knows far more, just intellectually speaking, she knows far more about all these things than she lets on, mm-hmm. which is yeah. interesting. Well, either way, she preyed upon the ignorance and vulnerability of her followers, yeah. and she filled in any theological gaps that her followers had with these insane claims that made some level of sense to them mm-hmm. and convinced them that she was the only one who could ensure their eternal destiny. Wow. Yes. So theology-wise, uh. she kind of built upon the basic tenets of the Christian faith, mm-hmm. but then like twisted them. So while God the Father is considered omnipotent or all-powerful— Cecilia presented herself as such a powerful witch since birth that not even the demons could withstand her when she was in her most powerful state. As the bride of Satan, she claimed to have had the keys to hell, Hmm. which in the Bible, Jesus holds the keys to hell. And she said that she would do God's will by opening up those gates at the proper time, unleashing legions of demons onto the earth after Christ's return. Goodness. In the same vein, God is described as omniscient or all-knowing. Cecilia demonstrated her omniscience by always knowing everything about everyone at all times. Not only did she have every degree and ranking behind her name, Mm -hmm. but she also knew truths about the universe that nobody else could possibly know. Where God is described as omnipresent, Cecilia leaned into her ability to teleport and astral project, claiming that she could be anywhere and everywhere at any given second, meaning that she would be able to fully keep tabs on what each of her members were doing and could punish them accordingly should they step out of line, and she could mobilize other members against anyone she perceived to be dangerous or a traitor. Wow. You could not escape her presence. Yeah. God is also described as omnibenevolent or supremely good. While she had plenty of things about her that one could point out as not good, she did have her alternate personality of Anya, who was the embodiment of goodness and perfection. And mm. so she used that to claim omnibenevolence by default. Wow. Yeah. So in just about every way from this point on, she kind of parallels herself with the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. While Jesus was 42 generations from Abraham, Cecilia was 42 generations from Ramses II. And not only that, but she claimed that the ancient sacred texts prophesied of her birth and her purpose in the world, just like the Christian scriptures prophesied of Jesus's birth, as well as what he would do while he was physically on earth. Wow. So she, she it's, it's that, that same thing of, you know, a lot about something, mm-hmm. maybe even not even like to a full comprehension of what it all means, but enough to twist it. And maybe even a full comprehension, of, but she just didn't care. And she would just say like what she wants to say to get what she wants. Right. Because um, 
I mean, that's those are a lot of specific things that the average person doesn't know. Right. The average person doesn't know that there's 42 generations between Abraham and Jesus. Sure. They don't know that. <laughs> yeah, that's not just like something that's going to pop up on your eighth grade quiz or like <laughs> not in usually. conversation yeah. at work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Good point. Oh. So she claimed that just as Jesus died and rose again, that she had died on October 31st, 2009, but was raised again because not even death could hold her. All of these things were intertwined with several other systems of belief, effectively convincing members of the overcomers that she was the real deal and that it would be in their best interest to do their bidding. Wow. Or to do her bidding, excuse me. Sure, yeah. To start, the members all got Electus Perdeus tattoos. Hmm. And after a seemingly harmless series of events, the first murders would take place. Wow. Yes. Okay. That's a jump from tattoos to murder. Um, yeah, it'll make more sense in a okay, second. Okay. That was like a, a very broad transitional statement. Yes. <laughs> oh, like they will get BFF tattoos. And then by the way, now let's go kill people. Like that's yeah. pretty, That that's a, obviously a jump. So <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. You, you, you jumped from tattoos to murder. You left out the middle statement that was a seemingly harmless series of events. Got it. That would unfold. Now go ahead. Tell it's us those. the seemingly harmless. These okay. are important. That is important. Okay. So this all started when Cecilia was consulted by Rhea to come up with a program that she referred to as Know Your Enemy. The Know Your Enemy course was meant to be a comprehensive 13-week educational course for people who wanted to learn about and understand the Satan of the Bible and Satanism and the occult in general. Hmm so that they would be better prepared to combat him. These courses were accompanied by a pamphlet that Cecilia also helped produce, and the program garnered a pretty impressive amount of public interest in late 2008 and beyond. And this would be when Zach and Michaela Valentine would attend the course and get connected with Cecilia. Hmm. Their families would note that as soon as they were sucked into the group, their personalities both completely changed. They went from gentle and soft-spoken to completely and very intensely devoted to Cecilia and Electus Perdeus within a pretty short period of time. Wow. When 2010 rolled around, Rhea felt like there was too much focus on the enemy and not enough focus on their main goal, which was introducing people to Christianity and the story of Jesus. Mm, And so mm -hmm. she decided to develop another program that she would call Know Your Savior. In order to be as thorough as possible, she consulted with her mentor of many years, a retired pastor named Reginald or Reg Ben Dixon. Reg had dedicated his retirement to the further study of the Bible, and Rhea trusted his insights and his character, so she was thrilled to involve him in the development of the Know Your Savior course. Mm -hmm. But there was someone who was not happy about it at all, and I'm going to give you one guess as to who's not happy. Cecilia. Yes. I knew it. So Cecilia wanted Rhea to focus her efforts on creating a follow-up course to Know Your Enemy that she could be consulted on again. She wanted to be part of of it, but she doesn't really know that much about scripture, weirdly. Hmm. Yeah. Well, or she does, but... Well, as far as Rhea knows, she sure. does. Okay, yeah, that's the, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Because she's quoting a lot of things throughout all of this crazy... I guess this is after, so forgive mm-hmm. me. Yes, no, no, you're good. So yeah, you're good. You're good. So Rhea, she tried to kind of like calmly, rationally explain why she didn't want to put too much emphasis on know your enemy. Like that was enough. Mm -hmm. The first course was enough. It was comprehensive. It covered the things we need to cover. It laid the right groundwork. We're Mm -hmm. not doing it. But Cecilia was not happy. 
And so she worked to make Rhea's daily life difficult for her. She got old friends of Rhea's to turn on her, co-workers to distrust her, and even managed to fracture her relationship with local police. And it would also be this that put a target on Reg Ben Dixon's back, unfortunately. Oh, no. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It was around the same time that Candace started noticing red flags. While she was the person closest to Cecilia, she noticed that she seemed to gossip and she had like a lot of petty vendettas, like mm. too many to count. She wondered if she was ever the topic of Cecilia's nasty words when her own back was turned. And these doubts led her to Cecilia questioning her loyalty. And so she essentially like, she isolated Candace to the point that she was dependent on Cecilia for just about everything. Hmm. Wow. From money to just about everything. I mean, anything you physical need you can think of. Hmm. And so after some time of there being some tension between them, this kind of led into Cecilia making Candace move in with her friend, Lucia. Hmm. Okay. So ironically, Lucia would be the one who would end up helping Candace to kind of see the light, so to speak. Lucia pointed out all of the many lies that she'd been believing and told Candace straight up that she's using you for money. And Hmm. so Candace broke away from the cult in 2010, leaving everyone behind without telling them why. Wow. So I'm not going to place any blame on what comes next on Candace. Completely not her fault. She was a victim who had escaped a very desperate situation. Mm -hmm. But even though she figured out what was going on before she could be further victimized or made to commit serious crimes, others, including Rhea and the members of the Overcomers and Electus Perdeus, were still in the thick of it. Mm -hmm. And they were all pretty much unable to see that they were all being manipulated. So help me see it a little bit more clearly. This is around 2010. Mm Mm-hmm. And Electus Perdeus, as like a breakaway from uh, the Overcomers, happens mm-hmm. later. So Electus Perdeus is existing kind of as a subgroup inside of the Overcomers. Somewhat simultaneously. And so I'll kind of get into this here in a minute. But what Cecilia managed to do during her time that she was still in contact with Rhea and Candace mm-hmm. was she really compelled certain people to herself. Mm. It was strategic. It was a slow burn. Mm -hmm. It was gradual. Mm -hmm. And I'll make this point again later, but I think when we hear stories like this, especially ones that take place over kind of a broad span of time, it's really easy to be like, that seems like a crazy fast jump. But really, they're spending almost every day with this person for years on end. Yeah. And they've developed a trust and a relationship Mm -hmm. and a dependence and all that kind of stuff to this person. Mm -hmm. And so while it kind of like the the actual timeline can feel a little bit fuzzy, I think it's just really smart to keep in mind that this is happening over a span of time. She had a plan from the beginning and Mm -hmm. was very patient with it. Mm -hmm. And so Electus Perdeus proper doesn't exist until later, but but it's there. It's there. It's forming. From the day that she shows up, really. Yeah. Like she's putting on this show and she's putting on... Uh, she's she's building this little tiny kingdom mm-hmm. underground mm-hmm. that's gonna 
her her plan is for it to explode out of the ground and overtake the rest of it it right. sounds like so kind okay. of like in plain sight which is yeah. so interesting wow yeah okay so it was also around this time that the division that was sort of budding between Rhea and Cecilia would kind of force everybody's hand into almost picking sides mm-hmm. between them like Cecilia was very scorned by not being consulted on this project that's really what that where the division started. Interesting. According to Cecilia. I mean, she was just looking for a reason as far as I'm concerned. And so some people obviously sided with Rhea and stayed with the overcomers and those that Cecilia had pretty much hand chosen to be part of Electus Perdeus chose her side, hanging on her every word and deed throughout the years to come. She managed to swing this by convincing them that Rhea and those who had stayed with the overcomers were straying from God's plan for them and that it would surely end badly for them all. Hmm. Rhea never knew that the Electus Perdeus crew were up to anything sinister until it was far too late for her to do anything about it. Yeah. And wow. this is actually right where I said it's easy to hear a story like this where you're getting little snapshots and wonder how things escalated the way that they did. But we're keeping in mind that these people were not only spending almost every day with her, but that they were also witness to some pretty wild spectacles that they couldn't find a logical explanation for. Yeah. And this was nearly constant for years. Yeah. Wow. So hopefully that explains mm. it. No, it, makes, that, that it makes a lot of sense. It's a lot of absolute cra- craziness all, it is. all at the same time. But it is. When you look at it this up close, or I guess maybe, maybe not up close, this at such a wide angle mm-hmm. so quickly, it's easy to see. But when you're being inundated every single day with bits and pieces and nuggets and bite size. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's the same kind of thing as, uh, uh, what's the, what's the adage of like boiling a, boiling a frog is right. just slowly turn it up over time. They mm-hmm. won't notice. It's kind of that same mm-hmm. sort of thing. She slowly turned it up over time and very patiently and diligently waited until it was time to break away. And then mm-hmm. it was at that point too late, mm-hmm. which is wow. Okay. Okay, so all of that said, let's fast forward to 2012. Between early 2011 and 2012, Cecilia ran Electus Perdeus very much like a ministry. They did outreach. They, I'm going to put this in scare quotes, they gave to charity. Really, they were tithing to Cecilia. Sure, yeah. And they were convinced as a whole that they were focusing much more on the deliverance of those trapped in the occult world that wanted out. They truly believed that they were doing the Lord's work. Like, Unironically, that's what they believed. During that time, since Candace was out, Cecilia took over the finances completely. And in order to be in the group at all, every member had to contribute financially and to the hands-on work as well. Mm -hmm. By this point, Cecilia had several million rand in her possession or a couple hundred thousands of U.S. dollars. So like not chump change. Yeah. Rhea was still being harassed by Cecilia in a few different ways, including strange and ominous texts from Cecilia or one of her alternate personalities, medical Mm. emergencies, such as faking being stabbed and needing only Rhea's help, and that sort of stuff. Like a lot of... Wow. It would come out of nowhere. It would be like Rhea would sort of start to feel some level of peace about the situation, like maybe I can move on a little bit, Mm -hmm. and then Cecilia would just like stick her head back in. Yeah. Wow. Really, really frustrating. And so Rhea was starting to become paranoid about Cecilia and her little minions. And so she started hosting her meetings in secret. But little did she know, Cecilia had installed a tracker 
on, I'm not sure which device, but some of Rhea's devices, letting her know where Rhea was at all times. Wow, that's freaky. That's psychotic. Can we just say, that is insane. That is next level insane. So when the Overcomers meetings were taking place, Cecilia would unleash her crew to vandalize the cars of the members who were parked outside. They'd slash tires, destroy the interiors of cars to the points that like the cars wouldn't be drivable. And eventually, they even set up a series of petrol bombs that exploded underneath all of the vehicles belonging to the overcomers. Oh, my. Luckily, nobody was injured in the bombing, but it was clear that things were getting increasingly dangerous. And Rhea was increasingly convinced that witches from the Church of Satan were attacking her, just like Cecilia had warned her about, causing her to become more withdrawn. Yeah. So poor Rhea. Which is a crazy trick from Cecilia. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, this draws a lot of question marks around the people who are following Cecilia's directions. Right. Because at some point, you think you're doing the Lord's work, and uh, then you're then you're petrol bombing people's cars, and you, you it doesn't raise any red flags for anybody. That's I would have loved to have been a fly mm. on the wall to know yeah. how she mobilized them the way that she did. Yeah. It was very Manson family. That's, yeah. That's that's all I can think of is people who have just been brainwashed into, oh, th- this is a good thing to do. Especially because they know these people. Right. They've spent years together. Right. They would know Rhea's car. Yeah. It's not like they're being you know, told this random place in this random area at this random time. And all these cars seem to look just like all of our friends' cars. Mm-hmm. Like, they would know all these. So, there's a lot of question marks that I have around that. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you have answers to that or not, but... I don't. Okay. Well, it really is as hmm. as simple as that. That's what happened. Not wow. sure what she said to get them to do it. Apart from, like, she was probably stoking the fire of... Sure. Um, or fanning the fire of... The, they've strayed from God's path and they're, they're going to suffer for it. Wow. And so she's like, hmm. and she also could be saying things like, God just gave me a prophetic word and he said, I needed to have you do this. Hmm. She could have said that. She sure. said, I just talked to God. She could have faked a trance. She could have fallen on the ground and been like, God is talking to me and said right. that. You know what I mean? And they believe her, obviously, because she's been demonstrating all these crazy things over the course of the last several years. Yes. So. So it just builds. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of a theme of this whole cult is like every single word and action that Cecilia did from the moment she met Rhea was a single brick. Mm -hmm. And you start stacking those bricks up and suddenly you've got a giant wall. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, like all of a sudden. Yeah. There's a giant wall there just made up of all these little bricks. And yeah, that's how I feel like it went. So one of the more dedicated members of the Overcomers was 33-year-old Natasha Berger. Mm -hmm. At one of the Know Your Savior meetings, Natasha had shared a prayer that she had written aimed at the children in the non-existent orphanage, praying for their safety and well-being. When Cecilia learned about this, this was when she first mobilized her followers to actually kill people. She told them that Natasha's prayer was a danger prayer and it had resulted in the deaths of 170 children and that she needed to pay for what she had done. What? Natasha needed to die. What? Isn't that insane? That's, oh my gosh. That's, I don't even have a response for that. That is like so out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. So on July 26, 2012, a carload of members drove to Praetoria, the town where Natasha lived, and Marcel 
who was 13 at the time, would put on a disguise. This was kind of their game plan. Mm -hmm. Marcel would put on a disguise, knock on Natasha's door, and tell her that her cat had run into her house and she needed to go get it. Once Marcel was inside, she would then spray Natasha with pepper spray, and then Zach, Michaela, and Marinda, who were also in the vehicle, would come in and kill her. Obviously, when they got there and tried to execute this plan, Natasha didn't buy it, and she sent them away. Mm -hmm. But instead of giving up, they went over to her neighbor's home, the home of 68-year-old Joy Boonzeyer. They told Joy that they were old friends of Natasha's and that they wanted to surprise her, but they needed her help. Joy, who was completely unaffiliated with any church or ministry, let them in out of the kindness of her heart. Hmm. Once they were inside, they threatened to kill Joy if she didn't write a note, so she com- she complied. Oh, and no. she wrote a note reading, Natasha, please come to my house ASAP, Joy. They then put the note on Natasha's door after she left for work, knowing that she would see it when she came home. They then took Joy back to her bedroom, put her little dog in a cabinet to stop it from barking, and then slit Joy's throat in her own home, killing her. Oh, my So when Natasha arrived home, she saw the note and immediately went over to Joy's house. When she knocked on the door, Zach and Michaela answered, dragged her inside, and slit her throat. They then stabbed her multiple times, resulting in her death. They left her on the floor of Joy's sitting room. The note she thought was from Joy was still clutched in her hand also when she was found. When news broke about the murders, the media made note that there were several occultic items scattered around the crime scene, leading people to believe that a Satanist group was to blame for the murders. Jeez. So there were a bunch of Know Your Enemy pamphlets. Uh Uh-huh. Like a bunch of them. They brought them with and scattered them around the crime scene. I don't know if they were trying to frame Rhea Mm -hmm. or if they were trying to frame the Satanists. Right. But either way, the media was freaked out. That's... Oh, my... Yes. So a few short weeks later, in August of 2012, Rhea received a text from an unknown number that read, Hi, Rhea. Have you said goodbye to Reg? I hope you have. The pastor that had helped her develop the Know Your Savior program, Mm -hmm. Reg Ben Dixon, immediately came to Rhea's mind. So what had happened was that Cecilia convinced the members of the group that Reg was the one responsible for fracturing the relationship between Cecilia and Electus Perdeus, and Rhea and the Overcomers. Mm-hmm. And so on August 13th, 2012, Zach and Marinda went to Reg's home in Honeydew, posed as police officers, while little Marcel hung out nearby. They claimed oh. that they were interviewing him about the murders of Natasha and Joy, and so he willingly agreed to help. When he turned his back to them, just like a quick moment, Zach grabbed an axe and struck Reg in the back of the head. Oh. So then 14-year-old Marcel watched as her mother stabbed Reg over and over, and Zach struck him again in the head with the axe. They also slit his throat to make sure he was dead. Oh, my. He was 75 years old. Yeah, a retired pastor with just nothing but... Wanting to help. Wanting to be helpful. Yeah. In his heart. That's... Really tragic. Really, really tragic. With a young teenager standing there. I know. I know. Marcel really gets to me. So after news broke of this murder, all members of the Overcomers shared that they believed that the only person they knew with a motive to harm Natasha or Reg was Cecilia. Mm -hmm. She also, Rhea showed police text messages that she believed were either from Cecilia or from people who had left the Overcomers. 
So with this evidence and their testimony, police obtained a warrant to search the apartment where Cecilia and Marinda and her children lived. Mm -hmm. And while they recovered weird photos of the group dressed as vampires, along with ingredients for petrol bombs and several weapons, no arrests were made. Oh, you would think the petrol bombs would be a bit of a smoking gun. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Well, and you also have to keep in mind, I don't know if Rhea reported that to the police because she thinks that Cecilia's Satanist dad, oh, sure. the high, evil high priest, is sure. controlling the police. Wow. So she's scared to go to the police. Oh, there's so many like lies all around and, mm-hmm. and fear being used against themselves. And- I know. Wow. So before I forget, on the day of Reg's funeral, Rhea received a package with a chunk of meat in it and a note that read, Sorry, this is all the doggies left you. Here's a piece of your precious Reggie. Thankfully, it was learned that it was a piece of pork. But like, oh my gosh, like what were you trying to do? That's, yeah, that's traumatic. Yeah, that's horrifying. Even if she would have known that that's not human, Mm -hmm. like the experience of someone trying to convince you that it is. That it's your beloved friend. Is already crazy enough. I mean, they'd known each other since like 1994. And like they talked like all the time. They were very, very close. Anytime Rhea had a need or a question, she would reach out to Reg. Mm -hmm. She was very close with him. And so I think most of us can think of a friend or someone in our life with that kind of a um, a, a huge piece of our heart, you know, mm-hmm. that the idea of losing them is horrifying. The idea of losing them in a murder is doubly horrifying. Yeah. And then somebody taunting you like that. Yeah. Like, I can't, I can't wrap my mind around how Rhea must have felt. Mm. It's just terrible. Well, and there's still so many pair. Um, you, you've brought up the Manson family murders mm-hmm. uh, already. And there's, there's just a lot of parallels to this. Mm-hmm. with that already mm-hmm. that you've brought up and I'm uh, to to not go long I won't bring any up but there's there's elements that the satanic panic versus uh the desire for uh helter skelter and mm-hmm. so many other things but yeah oh, okay it's wild so these things unfortunately things did seem to be humming along in the worst way for the electus perdeus group They had killed three people at this point with no signs of them stopping anytime soon. But there was one member who was having major doubts and who was emotionally and mentally spent from the ordeal that she'd been part of. And that was Michaela Valentine. Oh, good. Somebody. From the moment they got in the car to kill Natasha, Michaela expressed doubts and concerns and she did not want to take part in hurting or killing anyone. But she was dragged along anyways. Mm -hmm. Shortly after Reg's murder, Michaela called her mom and told her that she was trying to leave the group that she was in and that she was afraid for her safety and scared about what would happen to her if she tried to leave. And she like made some casual remarks to her mom about contacting police or a lawyer Mm -hmm. to get her out. So Zach knew about this phone call and about Michaela's doubts. And instead of supporting his wife for being a halfway decent human, Zach told Marinda about it. No, Zach. Oh, Zach gosh. and Marinda then told Cecilia, letting her know that they believed that Michaela was a liability to the cause and that she needed to go. The urgency to get rid of Michaela was heightened when it was learned that police were pursuing a warrant to search the Valentine's home because her mom reported her daughter's concerns to police. Wow. On the morning of October 4th, 2012, Zach made his wife a cup of coffee and added sleeping pills to it. He then kissed her goodbye and left for work. 
Michaela went and laid down in bed and passed out, and shortly after, Marinda and Marcel, using the keys that Zach had given to Marinda, went into their bedroom and hit Michaela over the head repeatedly with a hammer. Oh my gosh. Marinda was also stabbing at Michaela repeatedly, and she told Marcel that she needed to join in. Marcel reluctantly took the knife and stabbed Michaela one time before running out of the room like, I can't do this. Yeah. In total, Michaela was stabbed somewhere around 65 times, and that's not even including the wounds on her head from the hammer. She was 25 years old. Oh, my gosh. And Zach's a monster. Zach's a monster. That's evil, evil, evil. That kind of betrayal? Are you kidding? Like, and he could have protected her, and he chose to out her. Yeah. He was that convinced that the cause was worth killing his wife over? This is only, what, maybe maybe 10 years ago? Not even at this point? This was 2012. So okay, so just almost 11 years, years ago. ago. Yeah. <sighs> Wild. Wow. So in order to secure an alibi for the murder, Zach planned a meeting with local real estate agents to try and sell his house. That was the ruse. <laughs> the realtors came over with Zach, and Zach let them inside, and together, when they entered the bedroom, they discovered Michaela's body covered in blood in her own bed. Zach put on a big show, feigning shock and horror, believing that this would eliminate any suspicion that he had anything to do with her murder. Oh, well, it doesn't. Not to me. I mean, that would be, I feel like that's still a 101 move of like, okay, well, this guy's definitely like a suspect. You conveniently led us to the body. Yeah. Like led people to the body. Well, also he made comments about being worried about the cats. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's like, can I still sell my house to the real estate agents while they were waiting for police to get there? Oh, yeah. How does that? uh, Yeah, that's so he's evil and he's a moron. So that's good. That's good for him. So Cecilia's next target was Rhea's young son, Joshua. What? Thankfully, the people she hired to kill Joshua didn't show up and a hair on his head was never touched. Well, that's good. But I feel like. That's kind of a fair highlight to demonstrate how absolutely evil and off the rails Cecilia is. Like, mm-hmm. if everything else doesn't convince you, the fact that she was mad at her friend for not letting her help her write a course. Yeah. So she would kill her child. Yeah. Is so unfathomably wicked that I can't even, I can't even believe it. Yeah. So the public was convinced that all four of these people were murdered at the hands of Satanists. And the media quickly dubbed the crimes the Satanic Murders. But the trail would once again run cold, even though it's so completely obvious that Cecilia and crew are behind it all. Yeah. And so for whatever reason, the crimes were not pinned on anyone in the cult. Man. I got to just say, the police work for the majority of this is real bad. It gets better at the end, thankfully. Well, that's good. But Spoiler, but. (laughs) This is, yeah, this is. Shocking. Horrifying. They have all of these electronic things. Mm -hmm. They have, I mean, they took all the people's devices when they searched Cecilia and Marinda's homes. I mean, they've got the weapons. Yeah, what else could you do? They have motive. It's all people connected to the overcomers through Christ. Yes. Apart from the neighbor who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Like, well, and very obviously used as a as a decoy. Like that's mm-hmm. I know. It it just seems like the very first murder, I can understand there being a little bit of like, you know, haziness. Mm-hmm. But like right out of the gate, the second murder is like 
oh, there's a couple weeks later, something directly related to right. these this group of people, mm-hmm. and then the one right, and, and then the text messages, which, like you said, Rhea may not have shared. Um, but then the third murder is like within the group itself, right? So it, technically the fourth, but yes. Oh yeah, yeah, fourth. That's. I'm just like dumbfounded. At I know the inability to see. I think there's a reason for that, why the police work was so bad, which I'll get into. Oh, okay. In a little bit. So for the next couple of years, the group laid relatively low, apart from a few money-making schemes that did not result in murder, as far as we know. Hmm. And that was true until 2015. So the group was running out of money. Cecilia was spending all of the group's tithes on drugs, parties, Mm -hmm. a house in an upscale neighborhood, expensive clothes, etc. Jeez. And so she came up with a new plan. Let's just commit some insurance fraud. So one of the members of the group, that henchman guy that I mentioned earlier, John mm-hmm. Bernard, told Cecilia about a wealthy couple that he had worked for that might be the perfect targets. And so he set up an appointment with them, stating that he needed their insights on how to go about opening his own water park. So this was mm. Peter and Joan Meyer, 51 and 47 years old, respect, respectively. Mm-hmm. So now Peter had some red flags about this appointment request like right away. Yeah. And so he asked his business partner to join him, but the partner was busy that day, so he couldn't come. Oh, no. So on November 27th, 2015, John showed up to the meeting with Zach, Marinda, and Marcel. Mm-hmm. They were quickly able to overpower the couple and tie them up where they then demanded money from them. The Myers begged for their lives and told them that they didn't have any money in their accounts at the moment, but this didn't stop the group from stabbing them to death anyways. When it was all said and done, the group made 600 rand from the Myers, which is less than $100. Oh my gosh. A money-motivated double homicide for less than $100. (sighs) Unreal, right? Like, so unreal. Yes. Zach and Miranda were seen on CCTV footage near the Myers' home on the night of the murder, which led them to, once again, be on the radar of police. Oh, good. When they were informed that they were going to have to take polygraph tests, the heat was on, and so they hatched another plan. So on December 16th, 2015, the group made contact with a street vendor, 44-year-old Gerard Jackson. They'd kind of, they've kind of, they like, over time, tried to win this guy's trust. Mm-hmm. Um, So they told him that they wanted to buy his entire stock of items that he was vending. But before they would do that, so he was like, he would sell snacks out of like a cart on the street. That was how he would make money. Um, And so they said, but we need you to come with us. We're going to go fishing. We just want to enjoy the day with you. Hmm. And so Gerard, excited at his luck and at the prospect of being able to afford to pay for he and his pregnant girlfriend to stay at a local homeless shelter, Mm-hmm. He happily oh, hopped oh. into one of the two cars being driven by the group. This this one is just so sad to me. Yeah. He he w- needed to stay at a homeless shelter with his pregnant girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Poor Zach. And he was just... Or not Zach. Sorry. Poor Gerard. Yeah. No, Zach's... I hate Zach. Forget Zach. I hate that guy. Yeah. Poor like Gerard. Rot, but Gerard, that's... Okay. Yeah. Keep okay. Going. So this there, is going to get terrible. I can already tell. It is. Tell. So they're in two cars. One was Zach's Mercedes and the other was another member's car. Zach drove off with Gerard and LaRue in the vehicle. LaRue handed Gerard a drink, which he promptly drank, not knowing that it was spiked with drugs. 
As soon as he passed out, they strangled him with a rope until he died. They then pulled over on a remote road, placed Gerard's body into the driver's seat of Zach's car, then covered the vehicle with paraffin wax, lit it on fire, and pushed it down into the ditch to be discovered by police, effectively staging Zach's death. What? Mm-hmm. They're trying to fake Zach's death? Yeah, so he doesn't have to take a polygraph test. Yeah. Oh so he doesn't my. have to be held accountable for being a disgusting murderer. Oh my gosh. So the following day, Miranda posed as Zach's sister and identified the remains as 100% belonging to Zach, and police accepted this, no questions asked, never mind the fact that the body was burnt beyond recognition. Right. She was given a death certificate, which was quickly sent to cash in on Zach's life insurance policy. So in their minds, the group is like, look at us. We're so slick. We're so clever. Yeah. We just like, I'm not trying to be crass. This is literally their line of thinking. We just killed two birds with one stone. Zach is off the hook for the murders and we've made some money. Mm -hmm. Let's go cash in on that policy. Wow. So immediately the life insurance company was suspicious. Yes. They received a call from LaRue who informed them that Zach had died in a car accident. And I'll give you one guess as to who the beneficiary was on his policy. Oh, uh, Cecilia? Cecilia Stain. Oh, gosh. The policy itself was worth 3.5 million rand or a little more than 220,000 US dollars. But it had only been taken out. So this is kind of confusing. So it had been taken out years before. But hmm. he wasn't paying it. For a long time, he wasn't paying the premiums. Mm-hmm. And so it was like inactive or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then in the couple of months leading up to this scheme, they started paying the premiums on it again. So they decided to flag the policy. There's something off about this and we need to do some investigating before we can approve it. Sure. Finally, someone here is doing their job. Yeah. I mean, let's be real. Insurance companies will do the best police work if they feel like they're doing. (laughs) Oh yeah. They will. But either way, the group was kind of like, we're going to commit to this. We're going to see this through. And so they're like, Zach, you need to go away for a minute. Mm. So he did. Sure, yeah. When 2016 rolled around, the group decided to continue on with their super lucrative, sarcasm, plan to commit murder for money. On January 27th, 2016, John, Marinda, LaRue, and Marcel went to the home of 57-year-old Glenn McGregor, who was a tax consultant in a nearby town. So what they did was they set up an appointment with him in his home, and he had no reason to believe that this was anything except for a standard appointment— One similar to the many he'd been conducting for many years. Yeah. But he was sorely mistaken. So on that day, they went to his home, and once they were inside, they threatened him with a gun into giving them his bank cards and bank information. While they were kind of trying to get the, like, PIN number, all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff out of Glenn, Marcel took the card to a nearby ATM and then verified that the information they'd been given was correct. And he then transferred 6,000 Rand or something like $350 mm-hmm. into Marinda's account before they shot and strangled poor Glenn to death. They put his body in the trunk of his own car, drove it to a remote area, and ditched it. Oh, geez. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of really dumb things happening here. Yes. Like, apart from the obvious of killing somebody for such a small amount of money, right? They transferred the money directly to Marinda's account. Yeah, that's, that's, gotta be a smoking gun this time I would, you, one would hope right uh, i sure hope so also marcel is an adult at this point right yeah uh yeah i think 2016 she... so that, that would 
she was 14 in 2012-ish. So I think she was like 18? 10 or 12 when they first joined the group in like 2007 or 8. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, she's upper teens. At, at the very least, she's pretty close to being an adult. Right. Right. So, so they repeated the same crime again on May 10th, 2016, this time with 64-year-old tax consultant Anthony Schofield. This time, they set up an appointment under the guise of receiving some financial advice. But this time around, they got him to come to the apartment where the, the complex where Cecilia and Marinda lived in Krukersdorp. Mm, okay. When he was inside, they pulled a gun on him and demanded that he hand over his bank cards and bank information. Marcel took the bank card and verified that everything was correct. They then sent 16,000 Rand or about $1,000 to Marinda's bank account and then used his card at multiple shops around town. Wow. They disposed of his body in the same manner that they did with Glenn. Mm -hmm. They would repeat the same crime on 29-year-old Kevin McAlpine. Oh my gosh. Same thing. They set up a fake appointment with him, this time on May 26th. They forced him at gunpoint to hand over his bank cards and information. They stole 1,300 rand, which is something like... A uh, couple hundred bucks. A couple hundred. Yeah, a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. They strangled him to death and disposed of his remains like they had with Glenn and Anthony. Put him in his own car, drove to a remote area, ditched the car. Oh my. Wow. Very sad. So sad. And also, I'm like very confused at like, at what point do you go, oh, this might not be worth it? Like. I don't even this know. This is absolutely crazy. They've made maybe a couple thousand dollars by killing so many people. Yeah. So many people. It's unbelievable. So the public was starting to catch on to these murders. Mm-hmm. Average everyday men working in finance were being targeted by people setting up appointments, taking their money, murdering them, and disposing of their remains. Yeah. Also, these guys are setting up appointments, and I guess, you know, they might not be like, logging it digitally but i i mean i would like mm-hmm. these guys all have to have some kind of a digital calendar appointment with this and this and this person at this location at this, at this location time. like should be pretty easy to right. pinpoint who is doing this right so everybody kind of freaking out about it led the media to refer to these murders as the appointment murders uh-huh. and led professionals to take extra safety measures when booking appointments yeah Despite this, there would be one more victim before this whole awful nightmare would finally be exposed. Mm. 52-year-old Hanley Ladigan had an appointment with none other than Marinda Stain at mm-hmm. Marinda's apartment. So Hanley had told her husband about the appointment. She mm-hmm. also parked in full view of multiple CCTV cameras, but this didn't stop the group from ambushing her once she made her way into Marinda's apartment. Jeez. So Hanley did what she could to buy herself some time. Her husband knew that if she didn't call him by a certain time, that he needed to call the police and dispatch them to the address, which she told this to the group, but they were not swayed. <laughs> wow. They threatened her with a weapon into giving them her bank card and bank information, and she informed them that she never kept large amounts of money in any of the accounts that she had access to directly. Mm-hmm. Around that same time, Hanley's husband received a notification that 3,000 Rand had been withdrawn from their account, alerting him that something was wrong. Yeah. But sadly, Hanley would also be strangled to death before help could arrive. Man. They quickly loaded Hanley's body into Marinda's car, which they drove to a nearby uh, cemetery, kind of by an open field, Mm -hmm. and they dumped her body. 
which was oh. discovered the following day, which is just so sad. She did, she did everything that one would think right. would keep it from going that way. Like she really tried to cover her bases. It just happened so fast. She did. She did all of the things that she needed to do that everybody else was doing. It sounds mm-hmm. like. And I don't know if it's a common practice in Krugersdorp, in South Africa, or whatever, to have appointments in your home or in clients' homes. If that's like a super yeah. common practice, then it's like, common here. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's common uh, yeah. enough. I know here. people who are financial advisors here who meet in people's houses all the time. We've had a notary come to our house for us. That was yeah. a friend who just yeah. popped in and helped us notarize something. Like, right? Yeah, it's so. I mean, like those kinds of things aren't that abnormal. And like, she's trying to make a living. She's trying to pay for her right, life. Right. And so, they just yeah, take advantage just so of sad. people's need to work. Uh, and that's, wow. Right. Okay. Let's keep going. So police connected the dots and decided to check CCTV footage, wondering if the perpetrators of these murders could be seen withdrawing the money out of the victims, like out of their accounts. And lo and behold, there was Marcel and LaRue on CCTV footage at multiple ATMs. Good. So yes. This, this has got to be the smoking gun. Yes. So they were both brought in for questioning, and LaRue actually confessed to all of the murders, but insisted that he had acted alone. Wow. He was going to take the fall LaRue. for the whole thing. He was like 20 also at this time. Oh, dude. The police did not buy it, and within yeah. a very short time, Detective Ben Boyson a well-respected investigator in the area received an anonymous tip informing him that he may find evidence linking more people to the appointment murders if they checked the classroom of Marinda Stain, who was still a teacher while all of this was going on, which blows my mind. Wow, seriously? Yeah, so they went to investigate uh-huh. in her classroom and they discovered stoves, old stoves that were not operational, mm-hmm. full of evidence ammunition, weapons, documents, including her recently updated will. The will stated that she had denounced her children due to their terrible crimes and that the new beneficiary of her policy was Cecilia Stane. Oh my gosh. Detective Boyson brought this information to LaRue, who had no idea that his mom had gone and done that. And LaRue, shocked and heartbroken, sang like a bird and told police everything in extreme detail on the condition that he'd receive a lighter sentence. Yeah. This testimony provided by LaRue would be the thing to bring everyone in Electus Perdeus down, including Zach, who was MIA at the time. Yeah. He was caught living in a local homeless shelter. He got connected with a woman who hosted these campout trips for homeless people in the area mm-hmm. where they would go swimming and camping and do all kinds of fun outdoor activities. So when this lady and her boyfriend were informed that Zach Valentine might be in their group, they were initially skeptical, Mm -hmm. but it was confirmed that this man who they had known as Michael was actually Zach Valentine. When they saw, he took his shirt off to go swimming Uh and they saw his Electus Perdeus tattoo, which the police had shown them a picture of or a drawing of. Yeah. So like, what are the odds that the tattoo would be the thing? That's honestly. To catch him. Thank goodness. I know. So he was quickly arrested. So when everyone else was brought in and questioned, John Bernard's testimony verified several details that LaRue had mentioned, leading to the whole group being implicated in the satanic murders and the appointment murders. Wow. So they tied a bunch of stuff together 
over the course of several years. So listen to this. Mm -hmm. This is nuts. At some point during the investigation, Detective Boyson tried to use documents to attempt to link the 2012 murders to the 2015 murders. Mm -hmm. But apparently, the files for the 2012 murders had gone missing. What? There is still an active investigation into police mishandlings of these murders, and some believe that Cecilia's husband had a hand in those files going missing. That would be crazy. Despite the fact that he and Cecilia claim to this day that he had no idea that any of this was going on because he was always working when she was doing her stuff. Well, that's convenient, but sure. So that's still an active investigation. So I'm not going to make any comments about that. Yeah. But that is a thing that many people have speculated on that is not really that crazy considering everything else we've learned in this story. That's probably the least crazy thing that has happened. Well, if anybody's going to know that, she has the ability to have people killed. Right. Her husband would be aware of that. Oh, yeah. Like, duh. Right. It just seems kind of like he he's witnessing, even if he's not directly an officer on the scene, mm-hmm. he's witnessing all of these things happening in his community. So, oh, my goodness. Well, and this was kind of the thing that I was alluding to earlier in the episode when I was saying that the police mishandling was so bad Mm -hmm. and like it's shocking that it was so bad and i told you i thought there was a reason for it Uh, it would make sense that even if he was not the officer on the case like this is complete speculation i am not accusing anybody of anything i am saying allegedly to all of this because i don't feel like getting sued (laughs) but it would make logical sense to consider the fact that potentially the money that she was being paid could have been being used to pay off other people Mm -hmm. in the department. Who knows? And that is a speculation. Totally. Allegedly. Totally. But, I mean, I'm just saying, it's not a far cry from the realm of possibility. Yeah. Just saying. So, this is getting very, very long. So, let's breeze through the trial before we wrap it up. Mm -hmm. There's not a ton of information about the investigation itself. But the trial began at the South Gouting High Court in Johannesburg, On October 9th, 2018, with family members and friends of the victims there to witness the monsters responsible for killing their loved ones, hopefully receiving justice. Yeah. LaRue turned state witness and once again relayed all of the events in great detail before the court. Marcel also took the stand and she took accountability for her part in the murders, stating that though she was terrified for her life, if she had ever decided to attempt to leave her mother in the cold that she did have opportunities to share the truth with someone who could have stopped it, but chose not to because she was afraid. Wow. She explained how the cult got started, how Rhea took care of Cecilia and helped her out, giving much of her personal money, time, and efforts to Cecilia in hopes of giving her a shot at a better life, Mm -hmm. and that her kindness was taken advantage of in the worst way. Marinda Stain pled guilty on all counts after claiming that she'd received a word from God telling her that if she confessed, she would be forgiven, I'm assuming in eternity. And so wow. that's what she did. Uh, Marcel would go on to say that her mom lied and exaggerated in her testimony in hopes of getting Cecilia a reduced sentence. Wow. Because like she believed that if she confessed to certain elements of the crimes that were Cecilia's doing or whatever, that only one of them would be charged. And I don't know who told her that, but that is not true. That's not how that and goes. Nobody offered her any kind of plea yeah. deal in like to that effect. So it's yeah. like, okay. So then Zach claimed that his contributions were mostly 
supporting Cecilia financially and being a religious follower follower of hers, Hmm. but that the other witnesses were lying about his involvement. So he didn't take any accountability, including literally setting his wife. wife up to be murdered. John Bernard also turned state witness and confessed to his involvement in the crimes. As for Cecilia, she maintained and still maintains that she had no involvement. She doesn't remember. She wasn't present for the crimes, etc. What? But despite this, after a 60-day-long trial, it was time for sentencing on dozens of counts for murder to running a criminal enterprise, Mm -hmm. theft, etc. Yeah. Cecilia Stain was found guilty and received 13 life sentences plus 155 years. Wow. Zach Valentine received eight life sentences plus 93 years. Good. John Bernard only received 20 years for his involvement thanks to a plea deal that he took in 2016. Sure. LaRue received 35 years with 10 years suspended thanks to his plea deal that he took. And Miranda received 11 life sentences plus 115 years. Marcel received seven life sentences plus 144 years, despite the fact that she was underage for at least a handful of the murders. Hmm. All of these sentences are to be served concurrently. And while members of the group, some of them will be eligible for parole in 25 years, the likelihood of any of them actually being granted parole is pretty much slim to none. Yeah. Yeah. As for Rhea Grunwald, she fled Krugersdorp shortly after she realized for certain that Cecilia and the cult were to blame for 11 murders in the area. Yeah. 11 murders. She laid low until the trial where she testified that the old Rhea is dead and that this whole ordeal has left her riddled with guilt for placing people in the path of a monster like Cecilia, Mm -hmm. despite her good intentions when she first connected with her. After the trial was over, she went kind of into hiding Mm -hmm. at an unknown, unknown location with a new name and new identity, still fearing that other members could find her and end her life for her involvement in all of it. Wow. So there are also multiple other murders that Detective Boyson believes could potentially be connected to Electus Perdeus, Mm -hmm. but has yet to compile enough evidence to prove that without a reasonable doubt. And so no new charges have been brought forward. Mm -hmm. For today's story, I read The Krugersdorp Cult Killings by, I've heard, Jana and Yana Marks, Mm -hmm. which I'll be linking in the show notes. This is a super detailed book, and it included information that I simply didn't have enough time to include in our episode. So pick that one up if you want to learn more. There's also a documentary on SBS.com that you can watch about the cult murders. But unless you live in South Africa, you need a VPN to Mm -hmm. access it. Mm -hmm. And Candice Rijevec also wrote a book about her experience with Cecilia and the cult before she made her escape. That's called The Best Friend, Chronicles of the Krugersdorp Killers, which you can read for free on her website online. So I'll be linking that as well. Oh, wow. I didn't get the chance to read the whole thing, but from the snippets that I did read, it's pretty informative. It's insightful. It's like her own experience. Yeah. And so I'll have that if anyone wants to check that out. But that is what I have for you today. Oh, my. That is a horrifying story. Oh, my gosh. Yes. It's and it spans such a broad range. Like we're talking about a cult here, mm-hmm. but this isn't just a a religious nutcase, mm-hmm. and this isn't just someone who um, is is there for money, mm-hmm. and it isn't just someone who's there for power or sex or and it's it's like all of it. You know, there's you know there was romantic relationship involved at one point. There's like so much 
it honestly, what it comes down to in my mind, if I'm going to really oversimplify it is the vendetta mindset and mm. a woman scorned kind of a mindset. Right. And, uh, but wow. like she wasn't even actually scorned. She wasn't. She Ugh, just, she was just looking for a reason to do all of her crap. Yeah. She's the worst. You should do yourself a favor and Google her right now. And you'll be like, why would anybody ever be compelled by this person? (laughs) (laughs) That was not nice of me, but I don't like her at all. Well, I don't blame you. And on the same vein, I still got a problem with Zach. That dude is monstrous. Honestly, like I know he wasn't the number two in the whole situation, but he may as well have been like he played such a critical role in not stopping everything. Well, and he was the muscles. Yeah. He was described by his family as being like gentle and sweet and fun, kind, all Mm -hmm. of these things. And I believe them. And like them noting that his personality completely changed. That just goes to show how powerful these situations are. Right. Oh, wow. And how anybody can be vulnerable. He was educated. Mm -hmm. He had a solid upbringing. Like- yeah, it's crazy. That's crazy. That's a tough one. I'm That's surprised really that tough. this one isn't more yeah. talked about around here. Well, Even though it's across the seas, it's still like, you're kidding me? Yeah. Well, I, I said this earlier. You've alluded to it several times. It's it's very much the Manson family, but in the mid-2010s. Mm-hmm. and With a slightly different motive. Slightly different motive. <sighs> yeah. But wow, just absolute chaos. Mm-hmm. Fear mongering. Oh, I just I hate it. That is a and how how story. random most of the victims were, especially yeah. in the appointment killings. Yeah, they were just, just there sad. to take their money. Yeah, oh. it's just heartbreaking. Well, so yeah, that's the story of the Krugersdorp cult killings. Man, well, thank you everybody for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. And uh, if you. Uh, aren't already, make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast on your favorite listening platform and that you leave a five-star review or whatever the equivalent is on your listening platform. Uh, Those reviews help other people find this podcast. You can also follow us on social media. We're on TikTok and Instagram at this one is a doozy and on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. You can also connect with us even more directly over on Patreon. My love, why don't you tell them a little bit about Patreon? Yeah, so you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook about section, or you can go to patreon.com slash doozypod. And for $5 a month, you'll get access to all of our episodes Mm ad-free, as well as bonus content. And subscribers over there also get access to polls where you can help us decide on episode topics, as well as voting on which monthly organization we'll be supporting. And we just really care a lot about not just telling these stories, but supporting victims of violent crime and their families um, with actual, like putting our money where our mouth is. We're very passionate about that. So if you want to be part of that, head on over to Patreon. Yeah. Well, with that, everybody, thanks for listening. We will see you next week for another doozy. Thank you. Bye.